Welcome to this podcast today. It's my pleasure to introduce Ricardo Jose uh, and Anna, who is, of course will be joining us. Uh, Ricardo, if I can just ask you to introduce yourself just briefly. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Ricardo Jose. I'm a respiratory physician at the Royal Brompton Hospital, and uh, I have an interest in host defence, infectious complications in the lung, and also in relation to its immunity, the adverse effects of cancer therapy. Fantastic. Uh, and so delighted to be joined uh, today. I, I think it's this is a really tricky area. I, I think many people struggle with pneumonitis as, as, as a complication. And, and I think a lot of that challenge comes around the investigations, which are things that most of us aren't that familiar with. And we start talking about interpreting scans and thinking about the role for bronchoscopy or biopsy. And then I think management, once we get past steroids, gets a little bit tricky. What biologic to use? Uh, what about those patients that we struggle to get them off steroids? So there some of the areas we're really going to focus on today. Anna, just before we do, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, just give us a, you know, a minute or two review of, you know, what we talked about in our previous podcast, just to set the scene uh, for pneumonitis in general, what it means, what our standard approach is in terms of steroids, and then maybe if we'll pick that up then at the investigation level. Oh, yeah, so certainly. So I think what we've discussed before is that pneumonitis actually presents I think one of our most tricky um, toxicities to treat not necessarily because of the fact that it's an inflammation of the lungs but more of the fact that there are so many different things that can be going on in a person's lungs quite a lot of our patients have got quite poor baselines they've got other comorbidities Um, obviously we've had the challenge of covid then now sort of influenza and other other infective processes as well and obviously quite a lot of our patients are on immunotherapy and chemotherapy together so there's the whole neutropenic risk of infection process as well so I think it's the one of the most difficult ones to tease out whether there is in fact an an IO toxicity or not I think compared to the rest of our toxicity profile we can be a bit more assured that that's definitely what's going on so I think they're the ones where you go you know is this infection is this a PE is this inflammation it could be any or in fact sometimes all of those things so I think that's the first thing the second thing is if it is all of those things how do you balance that treatment and what do you do with it is is the other thing I think our standard approach it comes down to the fact that actually we need to make sure we're doing investigations and probably pneumonitis is probably the one where we have more investigations to do and we need to really make sure that they're 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 being done otherwise we have an unclear picture with a patient that isn't getting better and you don't really know what what you know where we're up to I think also in terms of do we give treatment at all with those patients who have got underlying lung disease and how do we manage them? How do we monitor them? Do we need to do enhanced monitoring? What does that look like? Is that just a a symptomatic review? Is that more regular scans? How do we monitor these people on treatment? And then I think the other thing is in terms of, as you were saying, our big challenge is what do you do if they don't respond to steroids? So we know also that um, unlike quite a lot of our other toxicities, there isn't a really similar common a picture in sort of uh, traditional respiratory medicine that directly reflects the, the IO-induced pneumonitis, which is very difficult from difference from, say, like the IBD world, where we have colitis that looks quite a lot like um, inflammatory colitis. So we've got some parallels that are very easily extrapolatable. Whereas in this setting, it's what drugs do we use? Should we use steroids? What do we use if, if steroids don't work? And I think there's still a lot of debate out there. And also the community within IO are starting to use drugs that aren't necessarily used in respiratory medicine in this setting. So things like inflammatory Fliximab and IVIG have certainly come up as as possible treatments. So we're we're sort of navigating and even 
uh, less clear landscape, I would suggest. So it'd be really interesting to see what Ricardo has to say about all these things. Um, but the other thing I think is also we get this complicated patient group who are quite well and respond really well to initial treatment, but then trundle for a very long time at the end and you can't quite get them off steroids. So we sort of have issues if they do respond, but we can't get them off immunosuppression or they don't respond and where do we go next? So it's a, I think it's quite a challenging toxicity for um, for people to manage, particularly if they don't see a lot of it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I find this, uh, and Anna, you'll know because I reach out to you regularly about these cases. I I struggle to know what test to do when and what value I'm looking to get from each one. So let's just kick off. Let's imagine that we've got a patient that presents with some shortness of breath to clinic. We uh, they're on an immunotherapy uh, treatment. We suspect that pneumonitis is in that differential. We check their oxygen levels, they're a bit low. And and often the easiest thing for us to do is either get a chest x-ray or get a CT. And let's assume that that shows some changes that could be consistent with pneumonitis. So Ricardo, first question is, what's the value of a chest x-ray? What's the value of a CT? Do they add different values? Do I always need a CT? Let's start there. Thanks. I mean, a really nice introduction to to this complex area and uh, starting off with a case that, uh, as you've mentioned, is something you are likely to see in, in, in clinic as the, the incidence of pneumonitis uh, is becoming more well recognized amongst people uh, using these, uh, these treatments. And, uh, and I think the, the first thing you've mentioned is that you are suspecting an immune checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis. And that, I think, is a very good starting point because a lot of people, at least historically, when there was less experience around the use of these agents, would see the person with a shortness of breath, a cough, some infiltrates. And the initial um, conclusion is that this person has an infection and therefore they get started on antimicrobials and then those antimicrobials are not helping. The person may be feeling a little bit worse. They then get escalated to intravenous or something else, you know, a change in antimicrobial therapy. And only after a long time has progressed do they identify that, oh, maybe this is not an infection. And um, that's when People then think, oh, could it be related to the drug or ask a respiratory physician for their input to try and identify the infectious source that's not resolving on the current antimicrobial therapy. So I think having the first index of suspicion that this may be drug related is great because it means you are more likely to, to make that conclusion and start treatment or a pathway of monitoring for the pneumonitis that otherwise um, you wouldn't have followed. So in terms of investigations, then we do have to think that this could be something else because um, you don't want to directly label it on the drug immediately. Because if you look at the probabilities of it being a, a pneumonitis, it's probably lower than the patient having picked up an infection in the community or with risk factors such as having cancer, maybe reduced mobility, they are at risk of uh, pulmonary emboli as well. Now, generally speaking, with a pulmonary embolus, you don't tend to see a lot of pulmonary infiltrates. So if you do see that, it makes the uh, likelihood of a pulmonary embolus uh, less likely, um, unless the patient has had rather large pulmonary emboli with, um, with infarction seen on, on the scan. So 
Seeing lots of pulmonary infiltrates would make that a less likely diagnosis, but nevertheless an important one to exclude in the breathless patient. Um, when the patient has also fever, cough, you, you are thinking of, of infections. Um, but I think the, the pattern of the CT is very important and um, leads to the person interpreting that scan thinking about this being a pneumonitis related to infection or related to, to the drug. Again, if you start to see peripheral ground loss change, wedge-shaped, you are starting to think more of a drug-induced uh, pneumonitis than, than infection. Although we know, again, with COVID and a lot of the other viruses, you can get multilobar ground loss change, confusing the picture. But so in that sense, I think a CT is very useful. And um, I don't think X-rays or chest X-rays have a valuable role in this scenario. They may show an obvious finding of consolidation, say in, in one lobe, and you've got a, a diagnosis of pneumonia, or they may show the presence of a pleural effusion. Um, they may show evidence of cardiomegaly that you could potentially see in heart failure. But overall, the sensitivity and specificity of picking up um, the subtle clues that will lead to the differential diagnosis of these pneumonitis is very low. So you're more likely to see mediastinal adenopathy, hyaluradenopathy, tree and bud granulomatous changes in the lung, for example, with immune checkpoint inhibitors, sarcoid-like granulomatous reactions on the CT than you will on the next rate you're more likely to see the ground loss change causing traction bronchiectasis on that CT, which you would not pick up on, on the chest X-ray. So I think a chest X-ray, in my personal view, is, um, is not valuable at all here, and, uh, and a CT is key. The high-resolution CT scan versus a CT palmioangiogram is... Uh, Again, something to think about, because if you do suspect the patient has a PE, then going down the route of uh, injecting contrast and obtaining a pulmonary angiogram is going to be useful. But we also have to be mindful that when we inject contrast for a CT scan, that that can lead to some changes in the lung parenchyma that gives an appearance of some ground loss change as well, more uniform rather than patchy, but still something to to think about when deciding between those two scans. And then finally, what I'll say about the CT scan is uh, the importance of a good chest radiologist who has the expertise in looking at this imaging and uh, providing a report that will lead the physician interpreting that report to the correct diagnosis because what you may often see in a standard CT scan report is that there are bilateral pulmonary infiltrates or nodules um, and it tends to always come along the lines of most likely atypical infection, fungal infection cannot be excluded or mycobacterial infection and then what you find is by the time someone else comes to look at the case, the patient is on a broad spectrum antimicrobial, they're on an antifungal drug and uh, very rarely an antimicrobacterial drug, but they, they'll be on, on, on multiple treatments, which then makes the diagnostic pathway down the line harder to identify an exact cause. So, so having a very clear report, I think, is um, 
is important for for the management of these um, these patients. And I think if, if we leave the CT scan um, aside for a bit, um, the other thing that I think is very important is the history. So how how quickly did the symptoms come on? Or is the patient asymptomatic when you find the infiltrates? Um, does this patient have any features that may suggest the cardiac involvement or for their breathlessness, such as the orthopnea, ankle swelling? Um, is the patient having a high grade temperature rather than low grade fever? Uh, is there any element of pleuritic chest pain? And that will drive again the thought as to what the diagnosis may be. Clinical examination may be helpful uh, a bit again in differentiating this between drug-induced pneumonitis, fluid overload, sepsis. And um, the other important thing as well is the timing of the administration of the drug. So we tend to see pneumonitis occurring on average three to four months after the initiation of treatment, quite rare to see it earlier on, but it can be. And in some cases, we've seen pneumonitis occur much later on in the course of treatment, uh, or even once treatment has um, recently been seized. So, so it can occur at any time, but usually that three to four month timeline between initiation of treatment, again, is, um, is a clue that this may be related to the drug rather than an infectious source. Okay. So Anna, I know that you're a big advocate of radiology in this space, um, and clearly rightly so. I guess there's two questions, Anna. Why do you think, from an oncologist perspective, and then I'll ask Ricardo, so from your perspective, why do you think radiology is important here? Because aren't we just going to give steroids? And so does it really matter the different radiological changes? And, and then uh, you know, I often see terms coming out of the, if I do take them to MDT, I get terms coming out like cryptogenic organizing pneumonia, which I don't know what they mean. I don't know how I'm meant to know what to do with that title. So so just from your perspective, because I know you're, you know, you're more familiar than most oncologists in utilizing radiology, why do you utilize radiology and does it make any difference? It definitely does. And, um, and I think the, it's there's numerous reasons. So one is actually about understanding this condition in more detail. So this is probably a number of different subpathologies, subgroups that actually we need to understand more about that probably have different responsiveness. They probably could in the future be managed slightly differently, very much like we see with the other toxicities that we, we see. Also, it's about building the relationship with our respiratory colleagues, and actually that's really important. There's also loads of differentials for what can be happening. What you know, ground glass changes can be caused by numerous things, not just checkpoint inhibitors. So understanding and putting the whole picture together is so, so important because you're right, if we think this person has got immunotherapy-induced pneumonitis, we will use steroids in the first line. However, we potentially could be committing people to long courses of steroids that they don't need. We could also be putting into question their immunotherapy that they because actually they've had a toxicity that they may not have had and also they might not get better and then you're questioning us is this that we haven't given them enough immunosuppression 
or actually is there something else going on? So putting the whole picture together is really important. Also making sure you've got the right test. So obviously I, I talk a lot about the fact that we have to give the radiologist the right information to be able to order and protocol the right scan. But also, if there's questions about what the, the images are showing, actually, then we need to think about, again, is there a subsequent test that we need to be doing that will give us more clarity? So, for example, if you've got somebody who's got basal ground glass changes and you're wondering if that's atelectasis or actually inflammation, doing a prone CT scan will tell you the answer. So actually, the more imaging we understand and the more detail it can give us, the better we are at getting it right for the patients in terms of understanding those who do need bumper courses of immunosuppression and those that actually we may be looking at a differential diagnosis that we hadn't necessarily considered and what that might be. So I find actually, as you know, I am a big advocate for the right the right imaging. I completely agree with Ricardo. I um, I mean, I am an oncologist who likes a lot of pictures. So I do think that, you know, I would always pump for having a CT um, rather than a chest X-ray. But also I, I want to know if it's the right CT, you know. So what we often start with a CTPA, which is very good at ruling out PE, which we need to do in our patient population. But it's not always the only test we should be doing from an imaging perspective. So I think it's it just gives us more detail. And then for the patients that don't get better or for the patients where there's a question over the differential or, you know, if they're on chemo IO and they've been neutropenic as well and have they got PCP, have they got inflammation, actually having that clarity of image that you can then discuss with your respiratory physicians and have a have a really informed conversation. It is a much better, more um, worthwhile and better outcome conversation if we've got the right cross-sectional imaging to, to discuss. But also it's important about talking to the, the radiologist about what you're asking. So the reason that I take all my complex patients to our interstitial lung disease MDT is so that the interstitial lung disease MDT radiologist can have a look at my scans rather than my cancer cancer radiologists who are used to looking for metastatic disease. So it's not only the scan, but who's looking at it that I think makes a big difference in terms of the patient pathway. Okay, Ricardo. So so I've heard Anna tell me that before, and and I don't disagree with that. But what I'm always left wondering then is when I've taken it to an ILD MDT, normally what will come back is that this looks like drug-induced pneumonitis consistent with checkpoint inhibitor. So that's often what I get back or what we discuss and what we get to. What is it on the scan that will have given them the indication that they think this is likely checkpoint induced in, in, in pneumonitis? Can you give me some really simple things that, that on, a, on that radiology review will often point them to that? So, so usually in these cases, you tend to see patchy ground loss change. So the ground loss change is just the haziness in the lung parenchyma that allows you to still see the, the architecture beneath it other, other than, for example, when you have consolidation with a dense infection and pneumonia where the alveoli are filled with pus where you lose that architecture and you cannot see them. So it's just a dense white blob with an air bronchogram. So you can see the bronchus going nicely in between uh, the dense consolidation. The ground loss change, you just see uh, a patch of, of whiteness, haziness, cloudy-like uh, picture. And it tends to be patchy, so it tends to be multi-lober. You tend to see it in more than one lobe. And it um, tends to have a predisposition for the periphery of the lungs. It also tends to have more of a wedge-shaped uh, appearance initially. And, and, and that is more of a classical sort of appearance. But now where things get a bit confusing for people is that there's often a mixed pattern. Nothing is usually very clear-cut and classical. 
Um, so you may get a combination of things seen on the scan. The other feature is that of traction bronchiectasis, which I think is key uh, because that inflammation is putting some traction on the bronchi and it opens them up. And, and that is an early stage of the pneumonitis, which, you know, if it progresses, can progress to a more uh, long-standing established fibrosis. Uh, so targeting the treatment early then in those cases is useful to, to prevent any fibrosis from, from establishing itself. But generally speaking, so you've got um, the ground loss opacities, which you initially see, you can then extend that to what you described as the organizing pneumonia. Previously, people called it a cryptogenic organizing pneumonia. Others have called it a bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia. So those are the different terms um, that you, 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 you tend to, to see. And in those cases, you start to get the fibrin deposition into the into the airways, into the air spaces. So it's now starting to look more like the consolidation that you would see with a chest infection. Um, you may also get other features where the, the lobular septum are more affected, particularly involving more the upper lobes. Um, and that is a hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So a hypersensitivity drug reaction. Some people get features of pneumonia with eosinophilia, so it's an eosinophilic pneumonia. And in more severe cases, it progresses to diffuse alveolar damage where you start to get um, an ARDS-like picture, which when looked under a microscope, it would show the hyaline membrane deposition in the interstitial space. Those alveoli start to have some bleeding into them. Usually the patient will not have hemoptysis, so you don't see the frank hemoptysis. But if that patient did have a bronchoscopy on subsequent installation of the lavage fluid, you would see the sample being retrieved, being more and more bloodier. And as you, and if you looked at it under a microscope, you'd find that the macrophages uh, are laden there with, uh, with, with blood within them. So you can see the blood within the, within the macrophages. Um, so so the, the, the pattern is really mixed, but you can get a feel for what the sort of underlying pattern is. And the other useful bit is comparative imaging. So if there is any imaging before when the patient was well, um, if the patient's illness is progressing and you actually track that progression and see how things are changing. So for example, if you scan the patient after the initial treatment and there were small patches of ground loss change and let's say you opted to continue treatment or if you did stop treatment and observed and a repeat scan showed that now the ground loss change was resulting in traction of those airways that would show that there is progression of this pathology and would be in keeping with with the drug rather than an infection which again would be a more rapid insult with rapid evolution of the imaging changes and um, and in the other thing, I think also, as uh, it was mentioned with the differential, is that, yes, we are thinking this is a drug, we may think this is PE, it is infection, and then we shouldn't forget as well is cancer progression, um, because lymphangitis carcinomatosis with the infiltration of the uh, interlobular septum can look a lot like an interstitial lung disease as well. So a, a trained radiologist will be able to to provide that um, differential diagnosis. 
But we, we focused a lot on the imaging, which I do think is key, but also the the history is is, is important for, for the differential. And um, I mean, I don't know if you were going to discuss next, so I think something you, is bronchoscopy. Yeah. Um, and particularly in the UK, I find that we do not use bronchoscopy as um, routinely as other countries in, in Europe or particularly in the US mainly potentially due to a, a lack of availability of the procedure within our our units and trying to to schedule these cases in but certainly in the us it is more readily available it happens uh, in more cases and uh, i am an advocate for trying to arrange bronchoscopy early on in these cases because you may see features that may get you thinking about other differential diagnoses. So with an organizing pneumonia, you do tend to find a, a higher proportion of lymphocytes compared to neutrophils. If you've got a bacterial pneumonia, you're more likely to find a very high proportion of neutrophils in the airway. You also may find eosinophils or what the histopathologist will call shocko-laden crystals in the lavage fluid which could point you towards a eosinophilic pneumonia. Um, and then the other important bit is that a bronchoscopy will provide you with data on the presence of any pathogens that may be in the airways. A very sensitive test is the PCR for PCP DNA. And uh, although detecting it in the lavage fluid does not mean this person has PCP because some people are colonized with PC, PJP, pneumocystis gyrovitiae, but um, in someone who's breathless, in someone who's got low oxygen saturations, and in someone who, for example, has diffuse ground glass infiltrates with sparing of the periphery, PCP then would become um, the diagnosis and the patient could initiate treatment for that. Um, we also know from data, not necessarily in the setting of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy or in solid organ malignancy, but in the hematological malignancy cases where patients are immunosuppressed and are likely to have infection, you're more likely to identify the pathogen causing that infection and it will result in a positive change in treatment if that bronchoscopy is carried out early. So within probably 72 hours of the identification of symptoms or the pulmonary infiltrates, Whilst we know that if the bronchoscopy is done later, five days after the initiation of symptoms, it's less likely that you're going to have a, a good yield from, from that test. So, so overall, I'm a big advocate for early bronchoscopy, uh, um, particularly in cases that are more severe. So if you have someone with a grade two, grade three pneumonitis, I think a, a bronchoscopy is useful because you want to make sure you've got the right diagnosis and you want to make sure you've excluded uh, any pathogens that you would like to treat concomitantly when giving high dose steroids. Fascinating discussion. I think the, the role of radiology and bronchoscopy is just so important uh, to bottom out here. Look, in the interest of time, let's bring this podcast to a conclusion. And then in the next podcast, Anna, Ricardo, I really want to get into some of those other tests. And in particular, in the next podcast, I want to pick up what we do when we get these samples back from bronchoscopy or from sputum that suggest that we've got organisms on board 
and we've got someone who's on steroids for this query pneumonitis. So we'll pick it up there. I look forward to picking this up in the next podcast. Thank you both so much.